Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Hello, podcast listeners. Today, we have a very special guest. Before we get to him, a real quick housekeeping. I'm going to be traveling to Lake Tahoe, New York City, Orlando, San Diego, and Amsterdam in the coming two months. So if you're in one of those cities, come say hello, and we'll grab a coffee or a beer or something. But now back to the show. All right, we got the deputy CIO of the institutional management group, Double Line. Also serves as portfolio manager for a whole slew of funds. He's also been a stat and math instructor at the Florida State Seminoles in Pacific. Risk Magazine named him Institutional Investor of the Year. Welcome to the show, Jeff Sherman. Thank you. Notice you didn't you didn't know the uh, the mascot of the Pacific. We'll get to that. That was my that was my intro question. So people call you Sherman to to distinguish a little bit from the other Jeff that you work with. Does anyone ever call you the Shermanator? Yeah, actually, that's not a reference I really cared for originally. But there was a colleague of mine who used it extensively, and it was Bonnie Baja, who uh, un- unfortunately recently passed away last year. And so I've. Uh, I've absorbed it as a term of endearment, okay. too. So I was always the Shermanator to her, or also Shermie, but I, I don't get that very often from most people. I, I can relate a little bit. For, for someone who has a, a bit of an odd name, every morning at Pete's, I get about 30 different derivations of Meb, or Ben, or Mary. But anyway... Is that uh, your real name? Is yeah. That, you ever get that one, too? Yeah. Once at the DMV, I had a, a DMV say, are you male or female? And I said, seriously? And they said, I got it wrong once, so I just got to ask. <laughs> anyway, so... but it's Meb, flattering. I, That's flattering, I actually. do know. So the Meb is a surname, and so actually there's some girls in the South named Mebin uh, as well. So there you go. All right, let's get back to the topic at hand. Don't judge a book by its yeah. cover, right? So some people may be familiar, and by the way, Sherman has his own podcast, The Sherman Show. You should check it out. It's one of the newer, you only done about 20 episodes, but great podcast out, recently launched. So check it out. We'll put some show note links in there. But let's, let's talk a little bit about origin story. You know, you started... One of your first jobs is running the scoreboard for the Stockton Ports. Yeah, exactly. So uh, is, University Ports, of, is that short for something, or does it mean like actually Stockton has a big port in okay. it? Okay, so, so it's, it's off the port. Delta River. So it's the plural of being the port. So for those of you who don't know, the University of Pacific is in Stockton, um, and they're also the Tigers. Very generic mascot name. And for those who don't know, Stockton is where? Stockton is in the northern part of the Central Valley of California. So it's about forty miles south of Sacramento. And if you went due west, it would be about 100 miles to the Bay Area. Is that somewhere near the Delta? Is that like the water system? Is that kind of? Right. So that's what we were just talking about. The okay. port okay. is off the Delta River. So yes, exactly. So Lawrence Livermore, like Livermore is right up there. So if you think of the Lawrence Livermore Labs, it's right outside of Stockton. So I used to share a wakeboarding boat with a friend and when I lived in San Francisco. And we kept it in the Delta for part of the year. And I never knew quite exactly where it was, but we used to go wakeboarding there 
there reminded me a lot of wakeboarding or being on the lakes in the south. Right. And it actually goes all the way up to Sacramento, too. So it was famous during the gold rush and the likes, too. And every year end after finals or during finals weeks and the like from the University of Pacific, we always rented houseboats. All the fraternities and sororities each got their own houseboat. And it was the one week a year that everybody got along. I love it. I miss it. I, having a boat is, is kind of the best and worst thing of all time and a huge money pit, but probably the best purchase I've ever made. And they say that those are two joyous days is when you buy the boat and then when you finally get to actually sell it. And there's like no lakes around LA is the problem. You have to kind of go up to, and so we used to, when I, when I moved to LA, we used to pick out lakes on the map that were in between San Francisco and LA and just go to these random lakes. And, and so saw plenty of kind of houseboat link ups and, and big part. It was, yeah, anyway, well, it was a lot of fun. Know, but about 60 miles north of here, 70 is Pyramid Lake, right? Yeah, so I've been there. there. Yeah. Nasi yeah. Minnow. Yeah. 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 All right. Okay. Let's go back to minor league baseball. So you're, you were working with Stockton Ports, scoreboard operator? Scoreboard operator. And so this was a very lucrative position that I obtained through one of my fraternity brothers because he was working there and he ultimately got into Major League Baseball and like doing a lot of the behind the scenes work of personnel. And then he did a scoreboard operator and it paid $10 a game, which is awesome, right? I mean, that's, that's definitely money for the week. And it had this great perquisite, all you could eat food. And so as a in the middle of college undergrad, I think I was a junior at the sophomore junior at the time. I mean, who could think of a better way? You can stuff your face all night, watch a game of baseball, and you get $10 when you walk away. However, baseball typically ballpark, my only ballpark food is not quite the healthiest. I mean, we're talking hot dogs. Oh yeah, nachos. I mean, pretzels, salt. I mean, my sodium intake was probably through the charts. But again, uh, you're young enough you're to, just school, gotta work it off. College. Right? And I rode my bike over there. So um, again, from campus to the ballpark is maybe about two and a half, three miles. And so, and it was like not the best neighborhood. So I kind of probably had an elevated heart rate going through it because I was trying to get through it pretty fast. Not to mention pumped up on sodium. So you studied math. That's I believe. Correct, yeah. And then started thinking about a little, you did a little grad school. Yeah. So the next job is actually as a bank teller. So that's my first job in finance. Talk about a yeah. job that's probably not going to exist in another five years. Yeah. I don't know the last time I've actually went inside of one. Once I found out you can actually wire money on the internet, I don't, I don't think I've been back. But bank teller, I guess I was decent. At, I got to do the commercial line, which just means you have to count more money. It's kind of interesting from an interaction standpoint. But from there, I was graduating school as a mathematician. I started on the side of doing pure math, trying to be a teacher. So I thought, hey, I'll be a high school t teacher, you know, do something like that. And just realized that, wow, the redundancy would just kill me, you know, uh, just as, as you started doing more. And so I actually switched to applied math and then realized I didn't know what my application was. So I'd studied a lot of statistics and, and kind of econometrics and things to that effect. And so I was always better on the numerical side. And it, it just seemed like I this is a great job, but I forgot to get a job. So all of a sudden it's rolling around and I forgot that there's this thing that, you know, once you graduate, you have to do something. So I I went and took the GREs and just uh, applied to grad school. So I actually went to grad school straight out from undergrad. I guess some, some people call it a non-traditional path. And so actually, that's where I ended up going to Florida State. The Seminoles, you know, it was interesting. I, my intention was to go straight to grad school. And my brother said, Meb, take a year off. Because I think it took him like a decade <laughs> to finish his PhD. So take a year off, make some money. And then, of course, I never went back. So it's probably a good thing that you went. All right. So down in Tallahassee, then... And my naivete is what took me there. I was like, I, was, I grew up in California. I'm like, hey, I'd applied to a few schools. You know, I actually had whittled it down to of all places like Texas Tech, Lubbock, Texas versus Tallahassee, Florida. So for all the options out there for mathematicians, somehow I'd stumbled and put these two towards the end. And so the final decision was, 
California, Florida. They both have sun. Didn't realize Tallahassee exactly the location of it uh, when when I went out there. And so uh, it was a little different culturally, but um, adopted pretty quickly. So what brought you out west? How'd you come back? So I actually, so I was in school there. I went there early in the summer to learn how to teach. I was a TA and that's where I did some of that. Kind of taught pre-calc and calc and the things like that. And uh, was studying numerical analysis and then I stumbled across quants on Wall Street. And, you know, this was uh, like 99-ish, 2000. And, you know, seeing kind of this revolution, what I deemed to be a revolution. Do you, do you remember, like, is there any, like, exact moment where you're, like, flipping through the paper? Or is there a book you read or TV? Or, or is it just kind it, of a... It was a conversation I had with one of the other grad students because I was disadvantaged when I went to Florida State from a mathematical standpoint because I had studied all these statistical courses, probability measure theory, you know, really interesting stuff for all you people out there. And problem is, is if you're not familiar with the location of Tallahassee, they have a pretty big school in meteorology because they have a lot of hurricanes. And so all of the mathematical students there are encouraged to go towards studying fluid dynamics and fluid mechanics to make sure you can do that. And to someone who studied statistics and probability and hasn't touched physics in a few years, man, I was lost. So I was looking for an application. At the time, numerical analysis was something that was kind of burgeoning. I mean, it's always been there. And solving problems with computers at the time, essentially programming, and doing a lot of kind of partial differential equations like. So this is really interesting stuff for our finance people. But someone had said this is this heat formula, you know, the diffusion of heat or a heat entropy, this is the same as the Black-Scholes option pricing. Well, what do you mean? It's like, no, these guys make money. I'm like, well, I'm a poor kid. Here I am, you know, living on my uh, stipend here in Tallahassee. What do you mean they make money? And so that's how I actually stumbled across it. And they had a financial math program at Florida State. It wasn't the strongest in my viewpoint. And so actually I transferred back out to school here to a financial engineering program in the city of Claremont. And so Claremont Graduate University is where I ended up graduating from with the master's in financial engineering. I wonder if that, like, you know, thinking about it, it would be good practice for catastrophe bonds, which is a, an area, I don't know, do you guys do anything in that world at all? No, that, that's that's like, that's one of those crossing the double line of risk things. And and so cat bonds, great correlation structure, right? The idea behind it is, is a good one. It's just tail risk, right? Reinsurers, you know, have all this risk and out there. I would say that, you know, the, the thing about cat bonds, they'd been popular the last few years. In fact, we looked at them probably back in 04, 05. Deals have come down a lot. I, I, I suspect they're going up, <laughs> uh, given the fact, and again, we don't, I don't want to make light of the, some of these situations, but the fact you've had three major hurricanes hit U.S. property, or at least you know, including Puerto Rico, there is a lot of risk in that stuff. So it's a tail risk event that is, is it, it's such a, it's an exogenous thing that h- how do you forecast it and, and perceive the risk? You just have to believe in the correlation aspect. And, and for listeners, if you're unfamiliar, catastrophe bonds are if a state or municipality or country even wants to insure against a hurricane or an earthquake or whatever this risk may be, you know, they issue these bonds that would pay a certain amount of yield. But if this event happens or trigger happens to simplify it, if a hurricane happens and hits this and does this much damage, it's more complicated than that. But, you know, you essentially lose part, most all of your investment. And so the challenge of modeling these is, of course, if, if you have these one in a hundred years or two, or is it two in a hundred years or is it 10? 
you know, and global warming. And so it's, it's a really interesting field, but it's also something that really kind of correlates to nothing else, but it's been, been a ton of money flowing into it. Well, it's been a ton decade. of money because there hasn't been these natural disasters too. So it looked like, you know, it's the classic nickels in front of the steamroller. It's like, oh, this hasn't happened. So instead of thinking it's about to happen, uh, people just extrapolate the, the good history. But the thing about it is, is that I don't know about you, Meb, but even with my Florida State classes in fluid mechanics or the one I took that I've just got crushed miserably. It's very difficult to forecast a hurricane. And especially when you're selling this risk for seven years. So the cat bonds are five, seven, 10 year tenor. And so this reminds me of like people talking about forecasting mortgage repayment speeds. It's like, it's very tough to forecast the next month. How are you going to model out hurricane risk over five, seven, 10 years? And that's why, that's why they had such sexy yields for some people. Yeah. And that's the thing is you just have to come up with a number that makes you feel comfortable enough, and this is coming from someone who's never invested in one, but been very curious for many years, a number that's comfortable enough to compensate and then come up with a diversified enough portfolio that would hopefully zig and zag. Anyway, there you go. It's a new product idea for you guys. We don't we do not do much in the fixed income world. So Yeah, I mean, and for investors, if you're going to buy cat bonds, I mean, it should not be more than 1%, 2% of the portfolio. I mean, the, the, the tail risk there is massive. Yeah. All right, so you're back at Pacific. Then did you immediately hook up with TCW next? Or yeah, was there so, some other stops on the road? No, no, I was, you know, I was on a short and narrow path there. So uh, when I was at Claremont uh, Graduate University, one of the gentlemen who was an advisor of the program worked at TCW. And uh, his name was Ed Franks. And uh, he was looking for interns for a summer. And so uh, I applied for that position. It's a little longer story than that. There's some, some complication about it. But essentially, that's how I got into TCW. So I had, because of the transferring from getting some credit from my year and a half at Florida State, I had like one class left after I did the internship. So I technically still had to go to school in the fall of that year. But I stayed on and, and got a job full time at TCW. Cool. So, and then listeners who are not familiar, TCW was kind of the jumping off point, the origin story of Double Line, which I think was a very exciting, tr- exciting maybe the wrong word, but transition into starting the firm. When did Double Line get started? Uh, December of 2009. And so it's exciting. Talk about an exciting it time. It was harrowing. <laughs> uh, it's, it's got all the makings of a good anticlimactic movie out there too for some people. But uh, Great. Who know, would play you? That's such a great question. We, I don't we, know. We'll, that, we'll that, have yeah, to think about that, it. That's what everybody says. You uh, know, ask I your mean, coworkers later. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, I, usually when you ask coworkers, it's not as flattering as, <laughs> as you think of yourself too. But uh, some people say I look a little bit like Adrian Brody or stuff like that. Okay. Like, you know, Tom Cruise. Yeah, yeah. All right. I think I'm a little taller than him, but uh, we'll see. Okay. So y'all started Double Line and it's quickly grown. I mean, what, what was kind of, was there a seed kind of first couple months amount of AUM? Because you guys have grown to over well over a hundred billion now. Right. So there was, we had, so we got into business. We became a registered advisor on, uh, what was it? December 13th, I think it was. It was, a, it was a Monday. We had a backing by Oak Tree. And by December 31, we had one client. We had one client of $1 billion. That's awesome. Yeah, it sounds great, except you look at each other and say, there's 45 of us here. Uh, we were talking, you know, your firm's getting close to a billion. You have how many? Seven. So think about revenue and, and things where people came. And remember, this is December of 2009. And if, you, if you're not familiar with the investment business out there, uh, bonuses tend to be accrued throughout the year and they get paid out around this time of year, which means no one had them. So yes, a billion dollars sounds great. It's one account across two strategies. So what do we do? And you start to talk to clients. All to, in. All in. <laughs> and uh, I remember the days of the all hands meetings where we got together. You get the email of all hands getting together. It's like, 
are we going out of business or are we doing something good? You never knew what it was going to be that day. And so some uh, days it was all hands holding hands. There was a lot of kumbaya <laughs> moments. There was, a, but I, I have to say the experience and the camaraderie that's built to that experience is that um, it's something that, you know, uh, for coworkers, I don't think it can ever be replaced. Yeah. I mean, and, and we talked about this before, but being a, just surviving in the investment management business is a pretty big compliment. I mean, you see so many firms that, you know, get huge and then also just slowly or very quickly implode for various reasons. So being able to grow it is a pretty big compliment. So you guys over a decade, taking it up to a hundred billion. So you're probably sustainable now. Yeah. I mean, some people still question the profitability at times, but uh, it's kind of hard when you, you know, it's simple math. You know, you take AUM times an average fee. I think we're doing okay. My first, I remember, I just remember my first bonus was a, I think probably the only bonus I've received in my life was a gift card to Cabela's. Yeah. <laughs> so I got a fly fishing rod, so it was worth it. But I you're still use it. stoked on that, right? Yeah, yeah. I just took it. I just took it over to Iceland. It didn't work that much there. I read too, because you said you saw the Northern Lights there. I think yeah. I recall. And I read too that like this is going to be one of the last years that they're going to go stagnant for a while. I just saw some uh, some That's article kind of sad. about that. Uh, why, it is now. I'm depressed because yeah. I think you just went to Iceland and wah, saw this. Wah, I'm like, wah. yeah, I, I guess uh, there's a trip to Alaska or something in the near future. Well, I, I saw it the first night there. My my brother and I were in a pub and we came out and I saw it and I was just screaming like a, just like a little kid. I was so happy. And my brother's like, "That's not the Northern Lights. That's that's a jet." I'm like, "Are you kidding me right now?" Like. How much uh, Benevin or what they call it, the black the black plague they have a black death it's a schnapps they have there that's I I wouldn't recommend it anyway back on topic all right so I'll start a double line and most people know y'all as a fixed income shop we're gonna get into a couple topics here but you've kind of had your hands in a number of areas as deputy CIO there's equities there's commodities I want to touch on both of y'all but what's kind of the general framework if you had to kind of distill double line and tell someone like this is you know because a lot of people are like hey we're a distressed debt shop or we're value investor but what's kind of the the double line framework for how you guys see the world yeah i, I think of us I, I try to describe us as we're twofold i consider us markets people so if we find interesting idea in markets and we'll get ourselves up to speed or we'll find the people we need to surround ourselves with to do that. But I also think about our investment philosophy. We're very macroeconomically oriented. And so our viewpoint is that if you can get the broad strokes right, you can kind of get the sentiment of what's going on in the macro landscape that leads well into fixed income. And so obviously growing up in those areas of fixed income, macro is very important. But that said, they can be applied to other parts. The, the difference is, is I think there's horizon differences. And so I mentioned this before that, for instance, you know, the bond market is more contemporaneous. Like if you want to know what's going on in the world macroeconomically, the bond market tells you from yields, spreads, the various types of products out there, you, you can glean what's going on. The stock market has a different horizon, right? And so it's a, this, this intertemporal differences between how the markets view each other. And so trying to use macro to allocate to equity is going to be a lot different, right? Because the time frame. in fact, you think about the depths of the crisis, when the data is so poor, that's when equities start to take off again, right after you have these corrections. And so you have to change your thinking from a macro standpoint to change that time frame that you're thinking about things. So my experience has been when I first started at TCW, I worked in a kind of a risk group or an analytical group that calculated a lot of things for the various portfolio managers. And so I had exposure to the equity markets. I had exposure to the commodity markets, FX markets. I had that kind of training ground, or at least it was self-imposed training that got exposure there. And you know, the critical thing to this business is you have to read. 
you have to push yourself. And so we're always looking for interesting ideas. Uh, having a quantitative background, I mean, I like, I like factor investing. I like looking at things from a non-fundamental standpoint. And so if I have to define double line, what I say is, you know, we're markets people, we're macro focused, but we're still entrepreneurial enough that we see a good idea that think it has merit. Uh, we're, we're going to invest in that part of the business. Quick comment, and then we'll keep going. I mean, I, I remember listening to, there was a bunch of students that asked one of Buffett's lieutenants, I can't remember which one, but they said, can you give advice to these young students, to us, you know, as young investors, how do we get to be in your shoes one day? And he said, read 500 pages a day. <laughs> so that's maybe yeah, a lot. That's but, overwhelming, I'd yeah. say. You know, but again, I remember that too when I first started. And my history of becoming a math major is it was, you know, something that was a little more natural. You know, we have those proclivities to go to things that are a little easier. But I remember, you know, that first semester having this literature class and having to read like a thousand pages over the semester. And I'm like, man, I can read three pages of math a night or I can read a hundred pages of these books. I'm going to become a math major. So I remember when I first started working, though, and this is, you know, finally email is catching on. And I was like, there's so much to read every day. And so I, I think I did myself a little bit of a disservice by uh, neglecting that. But obviously, I've caught up over the well, years. Well, curation is a big theme there. It's, I mean, it's the same thing as like, you know, perfect practice or practice. You know, is, are you just reading for the sake of reading or are you actually reading thoughtfully stuff that's useful? We struggle a lot with curation, the needle in the haystack sort of ideas. Don't have any good answers, but anyway, all right, let's go back. So what's the general sense of what, the, what how does the world look right now to you? If you guys had to kind of distrain, describe the macro uh, sort of landscape, What's, what's kind of the, the picture? Well, how, how the, things look out the window downtown? I mean, when you look at, for instance, like the OECD part of the world, I mean, everything's growing right now. And so there's no really challenging spots there when it comes to growth. Now, is growth the magnitude that's been historically? No, it's suppressed. And the question is why? We believe that's a lot of debt out there, right? I mean, when you, when you load yourself up debt, you've pulled forward consumption. So it's, that's not very profound there. However, that said... Inflation seems to be a global phenomenon. It doesn't seem to be localized in markets. Absent, you know, you have the Venezuela situation. You're always going to have this hyperinflationary environment somewhere that's that's just bad government. But when you look around the world, and it's probably not surprised, a lot of it has to be commodity related when you calculate a lot of these consumption baskets. But what you find is that you have a world that's growing, albeit at a slower pace than historical standards. You have inflation relatively contained. So it's actually a very positive environment for investing. Now, this presents the challenge of valuation, right? Because it has been a very positive environment, and the last couple of years have been this way since we had kind of the depths of the credit problems in late 15. And so what you find is that looking forward in the world, it looks relatively okay right now, but the price of assets already reflect that and beyond. And so it's a phrase that we use a lot of naive extrapolation. People use what's happened most recently and think that will go on forever. And so even though there are these bright spots out, the US economy is doing just fine. We had to release a GDP today. It says, you know, we're still on a year over year basis, like two, two on a real basis, three, eight nominally. And what does that mean? That means we're growing, not growing like we want to be, but you don't see default problems. Yeah, there's a few in the energy sector. There's some portending ideas on the retail side, but you know that, right? So it's not exogenous shock. So the complacency and the lack of volatility you've seen in the markets are reflective essentially of the economic data being somewhat complacent as well. However, we all know that that will go awry at some point. In time. There's, a, there's a great quote, and I, f I forget who says it, but it's like when you say, but 
everything before the butt is bullshit. So <laughs> yeah, everything right. you just said, let's yeah. now we get to hear where we said. Right. However, however, comma. and so we, we can go that side. So the thing is, however, things are expensive. Let, let's not kid ourselves. Whether that's you know equity valuation in the U.S., whether that's you know high yield bonds here in the U.S., uh, loans are becoming more expensive. Investment grade credit seems to be one of the most ridiculously priced segments of the bond market. I, we just had a bond market sell off in rates. We've had a 25 basis point backup in rates and credit is outperforming massively still in this little this little short window. So what you have is is a market that people are buying the dip too, right? There's this buy the dip mentality that's been out there for a while. And so the thing is, is do you play in it or do you just shake your head? And what we found is that you know for the last year or so, we think prices in the bond market, a lot of them have gotten ridiculous. At times, you may have heard my boss go out there and say, you sell everything in the market, which I have to calm investors out. It doesn't mean sell everything, really. But if you ask him, you say, I meant sell everything. It means, you know, take a little less risk. And so we've been doing that. And it's not been the popular thing to do. But if you look at some of the performance or our strategies and like, We've hung in there and we've done it with a lot less risk. And I hope no one cares about risk. You have lower vol in a low vol environment, but that's exactly what we care about. And so we think the problems arise perhaps, and you know, so here's this couching segment, but policy mistakes from the Fed. I mean, uh, Ms. Yellen coming out there and, and just essentially saying that she doesn't know what's going on in the economy. Does the labor work? The speech she gave this week was just kind of strange, but she did tell you she's raising rates and it's her last hurrah. And she's going to go out as a champion. She's going to hit the targets, the, the dot plots. She'll get her three rate hikes this year. She'll start to unwind the balance sheet. And she can say, see ya. I mean, who wouldn't, who wouldn't want to go out on top? And guess what? The poor person that has to take that next step. So that's a good transition. By the way, we describe the current environment as the Jay Cutler bull market, which is a... I, I love that. I heard that. <laughs> I, I listened to that in the car the day. I was dying laughing. Complacent, kind of melancholy, doesn't really care. Although that's probably a bad example because not he's not picks. a great performer. But he's not throwing picks, <laughs> yeah. you know, like he's just making, yeah. moving the ball down the yeah. field a little bit. But, but no, I think that's a perfect analogy here. But... You know, it's kind of the old Minsky stuff that stability breeds instability. And at some point, there will be a hiccup here. And what we see the disconnect majorly in the macro world is how can you have the European economy generally growing at the same rates we are? Let's take Germany, for example. Essentially, nominal GDPs are the same in both countries, the German economy and the U.S. economy. They are continuing to do QE. Right? They have a negative 40 basis points of rent lending rate. So they have negative interest rate policy. We've hiked four times. They're continuing to buy bonds. We're talking about unwinding, not just stop buying. We're unwinding the balance sheet, putting more supply in the market. It is a complete disconnect. And so if the ECB ever starts to taper, I think that's going to be, uh, it could be a catalyst for some of these kind of bump, the bumpiness to appear. But also, I think the Fed can be just as complicit here. They're going to raise their rates. We already have this pre-described schedule of, it's not really an unwind of the balance sheet. It's reinvesting less of the securities that are maturity. They have a huge maturity wall next year. So it's very convenient that this is happening. I mean, they're academics. They're pretty smart. They know what's happening in their maturity schedule. But what you see there is you, you have this tightening from that process. If we continue to have the hubris of tightening on interest rates, I call it hubris because we don't know what the impact of the balance sheet reduction or the, the, re, the lack of reinvestment will look like. We've only done it once in history. And you know there was a big depression in the middle of it. Are they correlated? Who knows? It's the, the sample size is one. But I'm concerned that they're going to have this low level of this bond repurchase. That it's like $10 billion a month and goes to 20 And they're going to have comms because it hasn't leaked into the economy yet. And so then they raise rates. And, and we have this kind of double tightening. 
And at the same backdrop, you've had other banks around the world tightening, like Bank of Canada. Bank of England is even now talking about hiking again or perhaps reducing some of their purchases. And you just don't have this liquidity transfer that we did when the Fed did. The Fed worked out perfectly. The Fed, as soon as they stopped, they started tapering and then went into uh, the idea of raising rates, the ECB picked up the slack. Right, they ratcheted up their program, and so when you look at the amount of liquidity provided the market, that's why the Fed was able to escape the way they were. So our concern is that this isn't a concern for three months from now. It's a concern that probably is nine, twelve, fifteen months away as this stuff builds up. Because look, liquidity is what runs the world, and pulling these bonds out at the margin, it's a supply issue. There's going to be more supply, means it has to put pressure on rates, and so ultimately, how does that play out for all these assets? Again, I don't think it's a carnage. But the Fed just tells us they're going to be able to, they're going to observe it in the market and they can back down. Come on. And, and I think That's most, what my most listeners listening to this will hear one thing in particular. And you talked about this in a recent paper, so we'll expand on a little bit, which is interest rates coming up means bonds going down. You guys have talked about this a lot before, but you also if you read the about, Wall Street Journal, they tell you that too, right? Yeah, Every time everywhere. Go, I don't and know well, if anyone reads that anymore. I think but. it has to be like, a, you know, they have the disclaimers on, you know, making sure people understand it. But- but as you guys have talked about before, that's not necessarily the case. And so maybe talk a little bit about the Sherman ratio, the Shermanator ratio, um, and what that is, and maybe you know how you're not guaranteed to get pummeled in a rising rate environment if you're investing in bonds. No, what, are, what are some of the options the, there? The worst thing as a bond investor is not rising rates. It's rising rates in like a voracious, very quick manner. So a spike in interest rates overnight or a spike over the course of a month, let's say. Think taper tantrum where the market, most investors were caught offside during the taper tantrum. It came out of nowhere, right? Bernanke just all of a sudden announced this while we're in the middle of buying that perhaps we're going to start doing this. And the market responded very, very rapidly. But when you talk about investing in fixed income, the key thing is knowing your interest rate risk. And so it's a thing called duration. You know, so we'll, we'll act like the Wall Street Journal explain it all. But the duration is a way of explaining your interest rate sensitivity of, of your investment. And so what you can have is you can look like the bond market, which some people call the Barclays aggregate, that has a duration of six today. That means is that if interest rates go up 1% over the course of next year, you will lose 6% just due to price depreciation. That's the math. The nice thing about it is there's this thing called yield. You get to add that back into the equation. And you know the, the good thing about it is if you can have the yield and the durations kind of matching, that's what we call kind of the Sherman ratio, is that you give yourself a chance. And so if you take the yield in your portfolio, and this is not a perfect science here, there's a lot of nuance here, but if you take the yield and you divide it by your duration, what that does, so let's just say you had a yield of three and a duration of six. You know, It's not what the Barclays Ag is, but let's just call it that. You have 0.5. What that means is if 50 basis points go, rates go up 50 basis points over the course of the next year, your yield will completely offset your duration. That is 0.5 times the six duration, you lose 3%, you have 3% yield, net, net, zero. I guess it's just net. There's not two nets. But let's just say instead. Net, net, net. Net, net, net. <laughs> well, now we're talking about leases. Those are triple nets. But what you see, like, let's just say instead you had a yield of five and a duration of six. Now, listen, that 50 basis point move, you lose 3% still from the move, but you have 5% yield to do that. So inherently, that ratio tells you how much rates can go up over the course of the next year. Again, all things being equal in order to essentially offset your yield. So when these ratios are extremely low, like they are on the Barclays US aggregate, what you're doing is you're, you're importing more interest rate sensitivity in the portfolio, even though the duration's still the same, because the yield's not there. 
So what happens to, and people kind of are just, they, they, they act so viscerally to this. It's like rates go up, bonds go down. Well, what if interest rates go up 100 basis points on a perfect linear scale? So let's call it what, eight and a third basis points a month. Well, guess what? If I have multiple bonds and they're cash flowing, that means I reinvest along the way. Higher rates too. Right, and they're at higher rates, higher yields. And so this is the dirty secret of bond investing is that the more income you can throw off and reinvest in a rising rate environment is positive to the portfolio and it increases the earning power of the portfolio. And so people, I think last year, Jeffrey Gunlock said something like, well, if rates go to 6%, we'll do much, we'll get the same rate of returns if they stayed here forever. And people are like, what are you talking about? You're gonna lose all your money. Oh, if it goes in a measured way and you reinvest along the way, you're gonna be better off. And so people miss that. And that's the whole thing is that you gotta manage these things. That's why we think active management fixed income works. I think it works in, in all sectors of the market, by the way. But in, more importantly, is it's controlling these risks. And so, again, why there's, I'll give you the fallacy of the ratio too, is that duration is just looking at kind of interest rate duration. There's spread duration, there's default risk if you're buying corporate bonds. So you need to adjust your duration numbers for those things. Uh, but, you know, intuitively, it has a very good appeal. And also, I mean, in, you know, people always talk about bonds as if like it's just US government bonds really is the main thing to think about, or the Barclay Ag. But I was looking at one of y'all's historical allocation charts, and it's got like US bonds, but agency RMBS, munis, investment great credit, CMBS, ABS, CLO, bank loan, high yield credit, international merging, everything in between. Right. But it's, it's, it's what I call the CNBC effect. When interest rates go up in a meaningful way over a short period of time, what do they troll out? The 30-year treasury bond. Right. So the long bond comes out because it has the most duration, the most interest rate sensitivity of that. They don't show you what the one year did or the two year did. And they start don't start bringing out the zeros. That mean more, even 30, more 30 year zeros is what you should, yeah. should show. But you know, that, that would be too simple because that, that has always has a duration of 30 by definition there. But what about the negative yielding bonds, Meb? They don't teach you that in the Fabozzi handbook. You know, these 10 year Swiss bonds that are negative yields. The duration is longer than 10. That'll that'll blow people. I think mind that kind of blew a lot of people's minds in general over the past decade. I mean, just just seeing those negative yielding sovereigns. You would probably ask people ten years ago if that was even possible. I think most would have well, said no. And there was actually I don't know if most people know this, but Nestle was the only corporation to actually issue a negative coupon on a bond too. So they actually got to get paid to borrow money. So you guys bought the whole issue? Uh, you know, <laughs> well, no, but we did. We put out a blanket request that if anybody wants negative yields and they want to buy negative yielding bonds. At Double Line, we are proud to write you a, a negative yielding bond all day long, an infinite amount of size, because guess what? The more money we borrow, the better our credit rating, because we have more and more assets, and we just have a revenue stream behind it. So again, we went the other way and just said, hey, we'd like to tap the markets. Who's there? And for, I mean, the underwriters got excited, but no one showed up for the uh, for the offerings. So. Weird, weird times we live in. So you mentioned these other sectors of the market, and, th- and that's, you know, it's part of this piece we put out early in the year. And we did it because everybody's worried about interest rates with the new administration, inflation pressures building up. Just said, look, the thing is, is that let's go back to the bond med. Let's show how certain things can behave, different parts of the curve and different pieces of the market. So, you know, we've been talking about this recently, but if you take the bottom in markets in February, I think it was 11th of 16, it's kind of the bottom, and you take the performance of sectors of the bond market. So if you just look at the treasury market as a whole, it's had essentially a flat return. Okay, so you have this flat return. So bonds stunk. Well, if you bought investment grade credit, it has a double digit return. 
and high yield bonds have like a high teens return. And EMD had a 25% return. And if you did this in actually an active manner, it had 40 and 50% returns. And so the difference is, is that it's knowing how to use the pieces of the market. And the beautiful thing about being an asset allocator and fixed income, we actually do get correlation benefits. Credit and rates tend to be negatively correlated. They're not gonna always be perfect in the short run. We know that. We know that the covariance matrices aren't stable. However, what's very important about it is that we know these things give us natural offsets. So we can balance risk between these two things. And again, any savvy investor, you could cut up a systematic process of doing it. But when you mention the smattering of those sectors of the market, it's because I can find specific risk factors from these pieces of the market. And they blend together quite well and they play nicely together. Let's shift a little bit, but kind of similar, where you're talking about pairing two kind of ideas into one concept. You guys have a fund. I mean, we'll talk about the strategy, but it's funds done great, raised over $4 billion, where you combine U.S. sector valuations and equities through um, a partnership with one of our favorite people on the planet, Professor Schiller. And he's awesome, by the way. He's the best. And loved y'all's interview with him. First, first episode. He's such a humble, just genuine person for anyway. It was just great to get into his mind, the psyche, right? Listen to how he's thinking. And yeah, he's just, he's a really amazing person. We'll we'll post show notes to it, link to it. But, you know, basically y'all came up with a concept where you're pairing this equity strategy with a fixed income component. Will you tell us a little bit about the thinking on on kind of how that's designed for the strategy and what the kind of benefits are and, you know, just let you let you roll with that. Yeah, so we were approached by some folks at Barclays with Professor Schiller about looking at an index. And again, that's where I talk about being entrepreneurial and just open to ideas. Yeah, we'll listen. We have a macro fund. We can trade this stuff. And so we obviously took the meeting more because of to meet Professor Schiller, of course. But that being said, we saw the idea and it seemed somewhat interesting. So did a little analytical work, did a lot of factor analysis on it and realized that it didn't have these traditional value factors. And so I'm actually going somewhere with this. So what we did is that, oh my gosh, this is something interesting that it looks to help it's a different value exposure because sector rotation it does use evaluation measure, but it doesn't load up on your traditional Fama French the way you think it should. Which surprised me a little bit. Yeah, and it did me too. I didn't actually, I can tell a story about the analyst who I did. I was like, did you subtract cash? Did you always <laughs> think, you obviously did it wrong. Is you, are your dates lined up? What kind of periodicity you use? And did it again, we get the same results. And I'm like, okay, now it's time for the rolling windows, right? Okay, show me. And we find is it's time varying. So the exposure is time varying, which... Intuitively has an appeal. I like value. I'm with you. I'm value, trend, momentum. I, and I explain like real quick what, how the strategy works for right. listeners. Oh, yeah. So I, I was going to get there. Yeah. Okay. But, okay. Anyway, we have this index. So the idea is that we're going to access this all through a swap. And so the reason for doing that is that we don't want to do the trading. I don't want to have to sit there and replicate trading. It's an ease of transition, but it also does one thing. We do the swaps unfunded, meaning that what I get to do is I get all the capital. So investors bring me $100. I can do something with that $100 instead of just replicating the strategy. And so the question is, what do you do with the $100? I already, so the $100, I get exposure to the equity market through the swap, but I also have the $100 to be free to do what I want to do. I could put in T-bills and I get kind of the total return on the index, less, less execution. Or we could use our expertise in fixed income to try to enhance the return, hence, hence the name of the strategy. And so what, what happens is that um, we can build a bond portfolio that tries to outperform LIBOR because that's what I have to pay to get my uh, equity exposure. But I get that return and I get return on the equity market as well. So it's not a balanced strategy. What it is is that $100 comes in, we put it in this kind of short 
interest rate sensitivity, not, not short by being short the market, but low interest rate sensitivity, kind of higher credit quality stuff, sector rotation within the fixed income markets to try to, to get an incremental return. And that's what we pay out as the dividend. And simultaneously for that $100, you get $100 in the sector rotation strategy based upon the academic research of Professor and, Schiller. And somebody, back in the day, they may have called this a portable alpha strategy. So, PIMCO yeah. used to do something kind of like this. So portable alpha got a black eye, right? Like every strategy that you do too much, like CDOs got a really bad eye. CDOs are fine, by the way. It's just when you have fraud underneath them, it doesn't work out too well. And but and also people should probably actually do a little bit of research of how the profiles look of them. That said, uh, this used to be, this is what I call an overlay. Right. So a lot of FX strategy or currency strategies do overlays on top of portfolios. You know, some other people have done this in the business. We did not create this structure, but being well studied and knowing about it, you can do that. So the portable alpha was like, what we're going to do is we're going to take the strategy and port it on top of something else. And we're going to get rid of all the risks in the marketplace. And so I think it was sold as a panacea and the execution was poor on it. And so a lot of people had bad experiences, but it's just a traditional overlay. But you guys call the, the fixed income side the Shent portfolio. Does that stand for Sherman is uh, No, that's good. And, and for those terrific. at home, it's Shint. It has an N in it, you know, for everybody listening. Uh, it's short to intermediate duration. I am not that clever uh, to come up with anything that regard. And uh, I don't want people listening now to cut, try to fill out the acronym. Shint, Shint would sound like something people would actually be a word people use in the South. That sounds like something like one of our friends in, in Winston, North Carolina would say. Yeah, and, and it's you know, going to do this. And, I don't know. <laughs> She ain't gonna do yeah, it. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, Perfect. Yeah. You got some Florida in you. All right. So, but but back to the equity side. So, Chiller wrote a paper on sector rotation. We'll post a link in the show notes, and you can replicate this with French Fama. But talk to me a little bit about the mechanics of how the equity side works. Yeah. And I, I have a few comments to make on it because I loved this paper. Are you talking about the one in the Journal Portfolio Manager? The name of it. I can tell you the name of it. But he basically looked at sectors back to like. 1880 or something. So that is the premise for this strategy. But but it's changing times, changing values, historical analysis sectors within the U.S. stock market, 1872 to 2013. And we'll post a show note link. It's great. Yeah. And so the idea here is that people historically have used the CAPE ratio to assess markets. So the broad U.S. market, you can call it S&P, call it the CRISP database, whatever you want to call it, and applying the valuation there. And I always kid and give academics a hard time, but say, if you ask an academic if something's cheap or rich, they compare it to history. And that's kind of what you're taught your first week in, in, in the investing class. And so the concept was, was why don't we apply this to smaller subsets of the market? Hence the sectors of, let's call it large cap US equity. And so the idea was that you can calculate all these ratios and find out what are the cheap and rich sectors. But there's a caveat to that. And the issue is, is that you don't just for how people treat certain sectors of the market. So think, I like to use the, the two extreme, I like utilities, which are low beta, high dividend, low vol, trade at lower multiples than something like, let's say tech, the sexy, new, growthy, levered economy type play. And we can argue if tech is really that anymore uh, or if it's different. But the idea is that why not take each sector's CAPE ratio and so calculate the same way, 10 years of inflation adjusted earnings in the denominator. So it's just a valuation metric, longer term and compare each sector's ratio to its own history. And by doing that, now you somewhat normalize them. You can say, okay, I like to des describe as that, where does the sector's multiple trade relative to history? It's kind of how to think about it. And why don't we try to buy the cheaper parts of the market? And so 
Uh, the idea was to take the 10 sectors as defined, cut the universe in half, you rank them on these relative ratios, right? So you're left with five sectors and do one slight adjustment. Knowing that historically using valuation, you can get the value trap. We all know it. I think we've all had one of those experiences in our own PAs uh, where you keep buying as it goes down, right? But to avoid that, what you do is you apply momentum. It's the academic way of thinking about value or, or lack of breadth, I should say. And by uh, what you do is those five sectors are cheapest, whichever has the worst one-year total return. So again, rooted kind of in Jagadish and Tipman, and throw that one away. You got four left. You're, those are the four sectors you want to buy. Can you tell us a little bit how you guys are positioned now? Yeah, well, the four sectors of the market today are uh, technology, which again befuddles some people um, because of the fangs uh, and, and their performances of late. But remember, not all those uh, fangs sit in the technology sector. We have consumer discretionary, consumer staples, so a little more defensive size, historically a defensive sector, and healthcare. So it is kind of this balanced, uh, when you think about growth in kind of defensive sectors, at least on a historical basis, uh, that's what the valuation is telling you. And, and you mentioned energy as something where it's, you know, one would think it's cheap relative to history, but... Yeah, it is. But that's where this uh, momentum filter uh, kicks in to try to help avoid value traps. And so energy is the fit of one of those five cheapest, but it has been kicked out because of the lack of breadth or the, um, the worst performing sector of those five. Um, however, after this month's performance, I think, you know, read something about like 17 of 19 last trading days, energy's been up. Uh, it may actually fall out of the valuation side of the equation. So even though the momentum is back in it, uh, because valuation is paramount in, in the strategy, you may not see it in there in the next month. It'll be fun to see it rebounds because I, I love to see what the, the computer kicks out because, you know, we do a, a country related one. And uh, personally, I was cheering for China last spring and, and China got kicked out, you know, in, in favor of can't remember who it was, Turkey or someone else, um, Singapore. Uh, but anyway, we all have our favorites. and, and um, But it's fun, too, because you have your favorites. But then, like, the other thing is you kind of root against the things you don't own sometimes, too. And, like, you know, the high-flying high sector is, like, the, the most overvalued is actually the financial sector. Okay. Um, and a lot of people say, and how can that be? Well, if you look at the price action since the election, I mean, you're up, like, 35% or so. And so what's happened is earnings haven't followed through on the deregulation trade and the like. So it's a little bit of the market kind of front running those things. Um, and so the valuation looks quite high. And the other one that you know I've always looked at is uh, the utility sector and REITs are all the real estate sector is also one that's extremely overvalued. And that makes complete sense to a bond guy, right? These are the yield proxies where people have been going to get yield in marketplace. And so uh, they've been a little bit agnostic to the valuation. I'd say utilities also with the, the low vol phenomenon we saw a couple of years ago, people piling into these ETFs and mutual funds that, that try to extract the low vol premium. A lot of that was healthcare related. So it's really cool to like apply the quant stuff outside of what you know. You have your methodology and then all of a sudden you start to apply this to the market and it has some intuitive appeal. But there's times where I'm like, oh, I'm rooting to get, don't get into the portfolio right now. Well, good, a good example is trend following too. We used to run these trend following strategies and people would email me all the time. So it might have been 07 when real estate started to roll over. And so that quantitative strategy would exit from REITs. And people would say, well, Mab, is, is it actually... And so we use the 10 month simple moving average. They say, well, does it have to close like 1% under or they start trying to massage the rules to get the answer that they were looking they want, for, yeah. you know? And so I'm like, that's the entire point of having codified rules is that it tells you black or white, yes or no. And so your interpretation, but that's people struggle philosophically with trend following, but they also struggle with a lot. Like we talked earlier about the formula investing where people struggle with value picking too. Right. Well, two things on that one is, is that 
Um, I had uh, uh, someone on a webcast ask um, back in September of 14, and yes, I do remember this to the webcast, because they, they wrote an answer like, well, you've been in energy all year, you just kicked it out because of momentum, you're not in there more, did you sell at the bottom? <laughs> and so I said, hey, I don't know, I don't know, <laughs> you know, we're doing the best. It's one of those, I kind of kept the email, and I wrote back a couple of later, nope, yeah. nope, we didn't. But, uh, you know, try not to try not to heckle people, of course, but you, you talk about the rules, and so as a quant, too, when you start to look at some these things and you, you just if you just say simply look at monthly data right and you're going to do this process on a monthly data or certain periodicity uh, then you start to watch it intro that period and you calculate the signals and everything you just you notice the noise in the signals mm-hmm. right and that's the other thing that can be a little disconcerting for younger quads it's like oh if i'd have done it yesterday i'd have got this different result and and so it's it's believing in robust i always love when you're testing strategies like what if we did it in the middle of the month or do the first week and see how those results differ and so again those are one of my kind of uh, pet peeves on robustness and making sure it's not just simply that period. Well, that's one of the beauties of using the 10 year price earnings ratio is that yes, it is a better valuation metric than one year trailing, but it also reduces the turnover. And so you have a much smoother, lower turnover strategy. And, you know, research affiliates has done a lot of work on this as others. So it applies to stocks, applies to sectors, applies to countries, and you end up with kind of a smoother, less noisy signal. Right. And, that, and that's what you're looking for. It's a signal, a signal to noise ratio, right? You want to try to amplify that the most much as much as you can. But also what a lot of people don't realize with using this CABE ratio is that, you know, the turnover is there still. And so what I like to draw is the parallel to the bond market. Like there's no bad bonds, just bad prices, the old trading saying. But the thing here is that even though you're using this ratio, the P matters. It's not just that the E, because think about it, 120 months, you look the next month, you have 119 overlapping months. So the earnings don't change drastically over that period, but the P moves a lot. Mm-hmm. And so we noticed too, is that it is better to, to apply this process more frequently. Again, you got to give it some time. That, that's the balance of this is like, how long do you let it run versus starting to reconstitute and things because you need some dispersion. So you don't want to rebalance every day outside of the costliness of it, but you got to give things time to run and have dispersion. There's a great quote from Ralph Acampora, old school technician, one of the finest minds out there. He's been around forever, but he has a quote. He's like, I love talking to these pure fundamental people that are very dismissive of, of technicals. Or, and he's like, I always ask them, what's your favorite indicator? And they'll say price earnings ratio. And he says, well, what's the numerator? You know, it's a technical right. input. And by the way, it's the one that usually moves. It's usually not the E that's jumping around. So yeah. anyway. And the um, P is the noisy part of the process. And even to that point, you know, when, when you're talking about these things, people say, well, I'm a fundamentalist. I'm a quant. I'm a technician. Why can't you be all? Well, this right? was actually a, tw- a Twitter question. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interrupt you, but then let you expand on it. Where one of the tweets said, how much do you guys, Gunlock and, and others at Doubleline, talk a fair amount about technicals and speeches and tweets and stuff? How much is that actually used in the process? And so momentum is a good example, but is it is it a small input? Does it depend on the fund and concept? What's the... I, it's, it's a way of thinking. And so like you have an idea, you have a macro idea. When do you do the trade, right? And so I think of it more, the technicals as trade implementation. We, we have an idea, we have something we want to do. How does the chart look? And then what's the setup there? And so the setup is more important for that execution in the marketplace. So it's done in that level. And things that are hard to value fundamentally. So let's talk about FX, commodities, things like that, where you don't just, I mean, you have FX, you kind of have the interest rate differential models, but what's the true value of these two things? And so I like technicals and quant more in the things that are harder to value fundamentally, but I think they all have an important piece in the puzzle. And so fundamentals are extremely important. You know, that's the root of investing, I believe. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a value guy as well. 
the technicals are important. I've heard location, but the one thing you can never dismiss is sentiment. And so regardless of how you felt about the election, the impacts of this new presidency, you had to respect the momentum in the market and the sentiment and how the market's behaving, irrespective of fundamentals. It kind of leads into technicals too. But the one thing is, is that the forces of the behavioral side can be much more powerful than the other two. So I'm going to take the cop-out answer and say they're all involved, but you get into kind of how I'm thinking about it. And so this is actually a really good example. And you think back about how many people's mental processes muck up their investment success. I cannot tell you how many emails, comments, tweets I received in the six months leading up to the election, I'm going to wait till the election and see and invest when things are more certain, you know, and then everyone got surprised by the election as well. You feeling more certain now. Right. But if you were to tell someone, feel more uncertain. That's a great quote. Uh, You can, you can can take it. I will. I tweeted this the other day because if you had told someone this the day after the election or any time in the following six months said, Stocks have closed up 11 months in a row. Only three times in history has there been a longer streak. 1936, there was 12 months. 1950, there was 12 months. 1959, there was 15 months. And not only that, we have the lowest S&P drawdown for a year ever. And we still got a couple months to go. <laughs> the lack of the 3% Echo, move, right? Echoes in 1987. But, but one of the least volatile, consistent markets ever. And anyway, it's just, it it goes to show so many people's emotions and sentiment being a great example just works against them. I would would also almost argue that the reason, or one of the reasons that you've probably seen that is markets don't like change. Markets like status quo. And regardless of how you perceive President Trump, he has actually delivered status quo. Nothing gets done in Congress. It's exactly the way it's been for many, many years or many administrations even. The last time we got cooperation, I think it was in one of the Bush administrations and it wasn't that, that prolonged. So you know, it's so funny that people say they don't understand President Trump, they can't get a read on him, but what he's actually done is just actually delivered the status quo. Yes, there's this idea of reform and things, we have to we have to see what can come of that. Again, if you've been ineffective for nine months or eight months, you know how, how effective you're going to be going forward. Don't know, but guess what? You can't rule the guy out. I mean, and and that's the thing about it. And you know, the, I think that's part of why you've seen some of this kind of you know, lack of volatility and things is because we know what we're going to get. Nothing. Yeah. Right. There's an academic study I want to do. We'll have to partner up on sometime. We can find some good professors to run with it. Which is go through back to 1900, pick the top. I don't know, 20 or 50 geopolitical events that are on the front page of the journal or New York Times or whatever and say, all right, I'm going to give you tomorrow's news today. And you tell me what stocks did the next week, month, year. And then you, you know how this is probably the results will be. will be people have no ability to predict whatsoever, of course. But it's just kind of fascinating. People like the all the questions. not going to improve their results. Yeah, like, I mean, the all the questions the same as if you get right. about markets are always geopolitical and stuff that really has no effect. All right. I want to shift to one more thing while I have you here before uh, before we got to let you go, which is a topic that is hard for a lot of people. And for the last decade, we've seen two pretty extreme views from the institutional world and flows, which has been commodities. So mid-2000s, every conference I went to was, how do you invest in commodities? And then <laughs> the last three years was headlines and news of every institution puking out their commodity exposure. Why would we ever invest? Talk to me a little bit about how you think about commodities. I know you guys have a commodities fund you're involved with. It's an area that has been near and dear to my heart for many years, particularly for someone who has a 
probably the least profitable wheat farm in the country. So tell me a little bit how y'all think about commodities. Well, one, it's, it's an asset class that has been hated. I mean, it's hated because, again, people jumped in at the wrong time. And I think a lot of money jumped. The institutional community came in and pushed a lot of prices around. But some people call it the financialization of commodity. But ultimately, you know, commodities have their role in the portfolio. Obviously, the diversification. The question is, are they an asset class? You know, I always like this. And you go back to the definition of asset classes. There should be some correlation amongst its constituency. And to that, it, commodities kind of fail that. But that actually makes them beneficial because you get the lack, the, the idea it's that- It's more the, of a feature. That's right. That the wheat is not, you know, wheat wheat uh, crop, even if it is a bad crop that you're they were harvesting, you know, it, how correlated that should that be to nickel production, right? And so you pull these things together and you realize you get this nice diversification benefit from it. Now there's structural issues with investing in it. They have term structures, right? You know, the idea that you can't just buy, unless you're going to take delivery, you don't buy spot oil or spot copper. You have to buy, invest in the futures market. And so that introduces a new wrinkle of or complexity of what does the shape of the curve look like. So commodities had their first up year in 2016 in like five. And I, I like your idea. If it's been down four years in a row or five years in a row, it's going to come back. And my, I was stoked about it to all my team. Like, look, man, commodities finally back at a good year. Oh, it did exactly what the S&P well, well, did. Well, yeah. Well, yeah, so the, the index did. And, and hopefully, you know, I think we, we had a little outperformance. And so the idea is that I think that there's merits to being long only. There's merits to having long short. And there's merits to CTAs, the momentum stuff. It works well. So when we built the strategy and a colleague of mine first started on it, Sam Lau and I, he's my co-host on my podcast, we built a long short strategy. And so we've been using this in our macro fund for you know going on six years now, about five and a half years. And so it's just long short. But when we deliver a product, this is where you have a good business idea. You talked about this before, right? Um, you know, it's running money versus the business of money. And I think that's a great structure to have. I love the correlation. You build it in the portfolio. It, it's, it, to me, that's the optimal way to run it. But people want to buy commodity, have the upside too, right? And so you're long short. You may not be in the right area to participate. And all of a sudden, the geopolitical risk we just talked about, you know, bombs dropping in Venezuela, cutting off production. So why not try to have a better way of investing the long only, you know? So try to bring all these ideas together. We've learned about TARP structures and how structural inefficiencies in certain parts of the market, make that be your beta. Also have your alpha or your long short component, and then let's allocate between the two. And why not use some form of momentum, which we know is the way that people do the long only investing, right? Whether it's long in cash or long and long short, and pull those things together. So. Uh, that's what we've we've kind of launched as a strategy a couple of years back. It's been extremely successful of, of garnering no interest, but we can we stay we stay committed to to the business. Uh, we think it's a See, great thing. I like thing. hearing that. This makes me excited about come on, it's everything lining up. It's the same thing we were talking about emerging markets too, where we say, look, you know, it's hated. It's cheap. It's done poorly. You see the signs of people closing their funds and getting rid of the allocations. Those are all positives. And that's why we launched it in 15. It was, it was, it was those, things, those headwinds being there. And look, obviously, the timing's horrible. You usually launch at the peak of a market or something negative can happen. But, I mean, we, we, it's, it's, it's been money long. It's done well. It's done exactly what it's supposed to do. It's behaving in the vol structure. And at some point, people are going to want it again. And that's, a, you know, because you asked how do you define double. And it's a perfect example. We, we built something we think has merit. I don't care if you want it right now. I'm not here to shove it down your throat. We want you to know that this is the way we think about the markets. We have papers on why we think it, it, it behaves well. And when you're ready, here's the offering. 
You know, and guess what? When you want to sell it, sell it too. You know, it's a two-way market. You know, it's, it's funny. One of the things I think a lot about, I mean, my buddy Steve Sugarud was on here and we were kind of debating and he often talks about collectibles. And I, I kind of think about some of the commodities in this way, you know, because if you ask the older investors and you talk about gold, you know, gold had a very different role in people's minds for most of the 20th century than it does to young people today. Oh, yeah, completely. Because, I mean, at one point, it was the store of value. We call it the the OG commodity, right? I mean, it has biblical street cred yeah. <laughs> of being around forever, right? Yeah. And so, you know, it was, the, it was the OG cryptocurrency out there, right? That was the first one. But then it was also managed, like, you know, the pegs of currencies around the world and everything to it. And the dynamics changed. But the collectible aspect is quite interesting. But most things that are truly collectible if you put any sizable amount of capital, you're going to move the market. So you think of fine wine. I've seen these classic car funds and fine wines. It's like you are your own marginal bid. So as a dollar comes in, you're bidding your own market up. It is quintessential momentum. Um, and then can you ever unload the other side? But um, I think collectibles are outside of financial because they have some sentimental value too. Was, I was reading a fun story, cryptocurrency inspired. I've been I've been brushing up on all the famous bubbles. And so I had I bought one that I'd never heard of called something like famous financial fiascos, okay, something like that. that. Yeah. I'd never heard of it. I was reading through and it was talking about Tulip Mania. Um, and it was, had a funny story where it said there was a couple that showed up to buy an all new black tulip that, that that was just like the rage. And I forget the number, but let's call it a thousand thalers or whatever the cost was, just unprecedented amount. They bought it, they immediately took it, threw it on the ground and stomped on it. And the guy said, oh my God, what are you doing? That costs more than like 20 houses. You just, what, what, it, he says, I own another one of these. It's the only <laughs> other one in existence. Now mine is twice more than twice as valuable. <laughs> yeah. So, but but thinking about you know, it's it's funny because unfortunately you can't do that with your your clients. Yeah, you, know? you can't say, "Hey, yeah. let me destroy this one to make it better." You know. But if you look at so some, something like gold, you know, if you go back and do historical simulations, if you were to pick one asset that probably most people don't have that does a really great job of improving the risk-adjusted returns of portfolio, gold. Like if you're evidence-based, gold in like particularly the '70s. Yeah. But the question is, you know, does the future look like the past? And it, and I, I think part of the use case is not really American and young people. It's, you know, India, for example. Well, yeah, I love that when people troll out the idea, well, India's got a wedding season coming up and they're going to buy gold and no one's ever heard of the Indian wedding season before, so you need to trade it. Or, you know, what I always talk about the supplies, all the gold ever mineable in the world still exists today, right? Because of the malleability and everything. And so it, it brings me back to like, I, I read early on in my career, the four asset portfolio. I know you got the Trinity portfolio. I'm going to go to four assets here. And they said, what you need to own is, it's just a dumb, simple, equally weighted allocation. 25% stocks, 25% bonds, 25% real estate, and 25% gold. And, and this, that, that's kind of like the permanent portfolio. It really is. It's, it's very, yeah. and that's where the, I believe where the permanent portfolio came from. Although I'm not going to try to say that anyone stole anyone's idea, but the, the thing is, is that I, I think investors reject the correlation idea. This is why I think that like, they don't want the long short fund. They want the long short fund when the market goes down, they want the long fund when it's up. And I'm like, why, why stop there? Why don't we just short it when it's down to be completely clairvoyant? That said, is that we know these properties of diversification. That's why you have this prevalence of like mathematicians coming in the industry over the last few decades. And the idea is that we sell people on this, but people's behavior just overwhelms everything. And it's the fear of missing out, the FOMO approach, right? And this is this is what really deviates you know people's behavior from what is the academic or the economist that says assume rationality, right? Because what's rational to the economist may not be rational to that person. 
You know, or when someone comes to me and it's like, I have $2,000 invest, it's a friend of a friend or friend of the family. I've got $2,000 invest, what can you do? I'm like, okay, well, you just buy this low duration fund. Just, you need to do better than your money market. Will it get me 20% a year? No, well, that's what I need, man. In 20 like, years, it will. <laughs> well, not many, yeah, exactly. If we have hyperinflation, it will ultimately get you 20% a year. So anyway, but the commodity thing, commodities deserve a role. There's been a lot of evolution there. You know, there's the, you know, I heard you, heard you talk, I've heard you talk about the 1.0 commodity indices, which were totally front ran. The 2.0s came along. And I think we're in the process of this 3.0 type of revolution there. And what it is, is that, you know, there's more ideas out there in the space. And I think they've been neglected because, it's been a loathed asset class. Yeah. And people get smarter over time too. But I, I think of the asset classes, there's only so many asset classes. You know, uh, We had Mark Yusko on and he says, people always buy what they wish it, they had bought. But, but commodities to me always have a, a place and depending on how you want to do it, whether it's long only, long short, we've always loved them. All right. Um, we're going to start to wind down because you've been here a long time and we're going to ask you a couple Twitter questions. They will be unfiltered. So um, don't, don't blame me. But one, and if you can't answer them for some sort of compliance reason, just say pass. Pass. <laughs> All of them? Really? Okay. Yeah. Um, no, no, let's go. Let's get them. You've already answered one. Okay, good. Fanny Freddie Preferreds, yes or no? Uh, no. Okay, that was easy. Um, you didn't say why, so that's easy. No. <laughs> there, was, um, there was another one. Uh, where did it go? All right, let's see. This is, I'm going to particularly hold you this one. Who wins long over the next three months? U.S. dollar or U.S. 10-year U.S. treasury? Well, those Gun two, to your head. Yeah, those two trades have been extremely correlated this year. That is yields to dollar. And so if we're going to go three months, oh, that's a tough one. I, I think I'd rather own the 10-year. Uh, I think the dollar rallies a little bit, like we've been calling it on a technical basis, but like it, it, there's just so many structural reasons as the ECB was on that the, 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 the dollar should decline. So I'm, I'm going to go with the 10-year, even though I think they're both not, not very attractive today. So listeners, you can't see the video version of this, but Sherman just flipped a coin. So said heads. I flipped a Bitcoin. <laughs> flipped a Bitcoin. Man, in the next hour, we're going to have to get you back on next time. We'll, we haven't even delved into the, the crypto world. I just saw that Novogratz was planning on launching a $500 million Bitcoin fund. With like 100 of his own? or like Ooh, a few, 150 like of his, his own, own, man. 350 that, raise. I mean, that's... Uh, I mean, why don't you just the, put the 150 in? There was a tweet that someone said, you know, we track cryptocurrency hedge fund launches and there's 60 the average age of the portfolio manager is 26 i mean i actually i would i would be worried if it was a 57 year old you know i would think if you're gonna yeah. have an edge you gotta be young and this comes back to you know when you talk about bubbles and phenomena of sentiment is that a couple of weeks ago i was at at a restaurant it was actually the opening night of football the thursday night football so we decided to sit in the bar and watch the game and five guys came in, and one guy's wearing an Ico shirt, like he did initial coin offering. They talked about it. So whatever, these people are there. So what happens is the bartender is the talking about it. the guy was Floyd Mayweather. It was not Floyd Mayweather. It wasn't Paris Hilton. Yeah. It wasn't uh, any of these celebs that we're seeing there. But the thing is, the bartender was quoting prices of these different cryptos. And then the other guy came, like another like waiter. They were like, it was crypto mania. Could you actually, restaurant. you couldn't pay for anything in the cryptos, could you? I, I don't, I don't <laughs> believe so. Um, I, I just used a traditional credit card there. Yeah. But that being said, you know, it does remind me of the taxi drivers in New York City owning five and six houses back in 05 and 06. Yeah. Just the mania around it. But the fact he's wearing one Ico shirt, trying, they're talking about another, and he's going to get him a discount to get in. 
it, it seems a little mania, but who am I to judge? Seems a lot mania. Okay, a couple more quick hits, and then uh, we'll, we'll let you go. You know, we've talked a little bit about individual investors, and this could apply to institutions as well, so take your pick, but what are the biggest mistakes that you, you see them making kind of consistently, and, and is there a, a good kind of prescription for that? that that's a really tough one, and that could, that could be its own show itself, uh, because I think what it is, is it's the fear of missing out at times. It's, it's a lot of the buzz around things. And by the time that hits, it's usually close to peak valuation. You know, there's a lot of the, I, I want to be in, but I can't take the drawdown. And so it's the timing. Uh, I know you've discussed the past, which I love is like having illiquidity, protecting investors from themselves. The fact you can't give you can't take your money out. But also, it said is, said from two portfolio managers. Correct, by the correct. Way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you our business is to keep AUM at our place, you know. But um, I, I look at the lockup funds we had, you know, going into the crisis, where we were setting up lockup funds for the distressed mortgage opportunity. And if people would have saw some of the marks while we're buying this stuff, they would have freaked out. But that's where you got to have conviction. You got to have that that idea. But I also think that you know the the consistent mistake is just trying to time managers and asset classes all the time. You know, not setting a prescription. I like the idea of you've, you've thrown out there about have your little play money account, you know, take 5% of your capital, just trade it if you feel like you have to. And when you lose it all, we're not giving you any of it back. You don't get to refund it. You got to resupply it yourself. But there, there's this too much trading. There's too much trading. I, I like the on. concept of the, the kind of the coffee can. You buy something and you can't sell it, or you can only sell like one investment per year. It's like one in, one out. That that seems to me like that'd be a good discipline because then you'd be a lot more thoughtful about or stop checking your stop checking your statements. I've heard you think about the Robin Hood too, right? They're checking all the time. I mean, I look at my brokerage statement like a couple times a year just because I mentally know what I own. I own a lot of double line stuff. But importantly, it's like, I'm not trying to tweak around the margin. Like, look, if something starts to get cheap, you just go buy it and you put it in the account. And most, most trades we do are buys. We're not trying to rebalance things all the time, or at least in our own PAs. I was having a conversation with a friend who's a money manager, and he says, hey, have you ever experimented with sending out text messages to your clients? And I said, oh, my God. He's like, are you, you want them you know, uh, checking it less, not more. Right. Not, God forbid emails. Now you're texting them at home. Usually that phrase is used in a, in a malicious way. I experimented, right? Yeah, so I, yeah, I, yeah. I wouldn't recommend yeah. that. No. Um, I said, I'll let you try it. Let me know how it goes. This is a question we're asking everyone in 2017. So... Um, what is the most memorable trade or investment you've had? And this could be good, it could be bad, could be both. Yeah, that's a tough one. Uh, Take your time. You know, I mean, probably the best trade I ever did was my uh, in my life, and this is going to sound sappy, but it was actually joining Double Line. Mm-hmm. It was one of the best trades I've made um, of you know taking a risk, and you know, obviously thus far it's pay- it's paid off. But in markets as well, I think early on, you know, the hubris. The model says this. I had a few of those where model says this, it must be right, have to do it, and and having that high dependency on the math and not really that I realize there's other forces at play and just being stubborn. And so I think that's uh, you know, and that was kind of a lot of options trading early on, thinking I could get leverage. Uh, Rimsberg just perked up. Yeah, yeah, he's excited. I hear that he's, uh, I don't know, maybe I could challenge him for being one of the worst options traders, at least on single equity out there. We used to love to trade the options on those three times levered NASDAQs and everything. I mean, this is just naivete, but you learn a lot. And I learned too from that, like the bid offer spread, because at that time they were nickel wide. And so you had to watch the buildup behind behind the bid or the offer because it's about to flip over on the nickel. And so that was a great experience of realizing that the rounding error between these two was so big. So if you can watch the book build, 
you can see that's about to flip on the bid or the offer side. So uh, kind of interesting things of, of entry points, but um, yeah, it's kind of a cop-out answer. But. Well, and so I mean, and the, the funny thing about joining, did at that time you were probably mid-20s? I was in my early 30s, actually. Early 30s. So it is a time to take a risk in my career. And I thought, what better way? And like, you know, look, you can always go back to being a professor. Also, like, you know, I, I mean, maybe I had some hubris too. But say, hey, if it doesn't work out, who's going to blame me for trying to join Gunlock and try to start something? Right? Well, you're screwed now. Yeah, yeah exactly. So <laughs> that didn't work out as, as that plan, as the backup plan, but uh, the primary plan worked out. Florida State will probably have you back. Sherman, it's been awesome. Uh, we'll link to all these papers, show notes, etc. Where can people find you if they want to follow you for more info? Yeah, well, uh, on doubleline.com forward slash podcast is uh, where we do where we uh, we post all of our podcasts. You can get it on iTunes, SoundCloud, the usual suspects. And um, you can always just go to info at doubleline.com and, uh, you know, people will forward it on to me and we'll get back to you. Sherman, it's been a blast. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Meb. Listeners, thanks for taking the time to listen today. We always welcome feedback, questions, the mailbag. Send them in. Feedback at themebfabershow.com. As a reminder, you can always find the show notes and other episodes at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. Subscribe to the show on iTunes. If you like it, please leave a review, even if you hate it. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. <laughs>